Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, Follicular Lymphoma, a new patient walks into the clinic. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of the continuing medical education series. This independent CME CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast series, our faculty will discuss follicular lymphoma, its management, first, second, and third line treatments, including some of the newer therapies. For example, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, copanlicib and duvelisib, and the CAR T-cell inhibitors, including Axacel, Lisacel, and Tisacel, as well as bispecific antibodies such as Mosuntizumab. In this first episode, Dr. Christopher Flowers and Dr. Loretta Nastopil discuss treatment strategies for the newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma patient. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Flowers is a professor and ad interim division head in the Division of Cancer Medicine in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Nastapil is an associate professor also in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Flowers will begin our discussion. Thanks, Dr. Nastapil, for joining me uh, today to discuss follicular lymphoma. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be discussing how disease management and treatment strategies work for patients with follicular lymphoma. But let's first start off by discussing the diagnosis of follicular lymphoma and the kinds of initial treatment strategies for newly diagnosed patients. So Loretta, tell me a little bit about uh, how you approach things when a patient with follicular lymphoma sees you for the first time. The biggest challenge for most patients is understanding that we view this as a cancer that can be associated with very favorable outcomes. So I think that's sometimes hard to really wrap your brain around. But if we think about the majority of patients are likely going to be facing a normal life expectancy despite having been diagnosed with a malignancy, I usually start the discussion with that introduction. I also acknowledge that you know, there are heterogeneous outcomes and every patient might be approached slightly differently. So it's important to know as much as we can about their individual characteristics that may help us sort of peer into the future and give them a a more refined answer in terms of what they may need to expect. There are heterogeneous treatment options from doing nothing to intensive chemoimmunotherapy. And so how do we decide? Um, Oftentimes there's a little bit of an art to the medicine in this in terms of, again, patient specific characteristics and then applying the available clinical trial data to try and, and give them the best shot at a good prognosis. So what kinds of things do you say to a patient when they first come in to see you with a new diagnosis, follicular lymphoma, bearing in mind that you've just told them that they have a diagnosis of cancer and the ways that you would expect somebody to react to that, but also to try and explain to them that the outcomes for most patients are very favorable. As I start the conversation by outlining what makes me nervous about a patient with follicular lymphoma and what makes me um, have good optimism about their future. And so to try and again, understand that better, I wanna know the disease burden they're facing. 
I want to know what stage they are. And I want to know kind of what their goals of therapy are. So I usually start uh, with reviewing their diagnosis. There are different types of follicular lymphoma. There's grading that applies to that, which is different from the stage. It's grade one, two, which we view to be quite similar. And then there are grade three A and grade three B. The three Bs are quite infrequent and I approach those differently. I think there are controversies in whether or not we should approach the disease based off of grade alone. I just view that as one of the factors that weigh into my recommendation in terms of management. I want to know what patient stage uh, they are when they walk in the door because that will have implications in terms of treatment. Oftentimes at diagnosis, I'm recommending a PET CT for patients. It helps me because it's more sensitive in picking up extranodal disease. Uh, it also may help me discern whether or not they may have more than one lymphoma diagnosis, which we know about 10% of the time. They may have a, a concurrent aggressive lymphoma that I that information would make me approach it differently. And then again, I want to know how their disease is impacting their quality of life. Because oftentimes patients are asymptomatic just knowing they have a cancer uh, may have significant implications in terms of how they plan out their next few years. So I walk them through that process of making sure we're confident about the diagnosis, making sure I understand what stage they are, and then using additional factors uh, such as labs, stage, performance status to calculate their FLIPI score that may give us, again, some information in terms of how likely they are to be alive and well five and 10 years down the road. You made it clear that grade is just one of those things that you take into consideration, but tell us first a little bit about how you think about a grade one, two follicular lymphoma versus a grade three B follicular lymphoma and how that uh, affects the ways that you might think about management. So the first thing I always tell them is the grading is also somewhat complicated in that it, we rely heavily on the expertise of the hematopathologist that's reviewing their uh, actual slide films to give us a grade. And we know based off of some studies that have been done, that's not always reproducible. But in general, grade one, I view to be quite favorable. Uh, I view them to be equally the same in terms of grade one versus grade two. The 3A is where I have a little bit of heartburn about what to do for those patients or how significant of an impact I should place on that one finding. For the 3Bs, I do view them to be more closely resembling a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, and again, they're rare, so we don't have great data that tells me I should approach them differently, but I generally am approaching them like I would an aggressive lymphoma, meaning they're likely going to receive chemoimmunotherapy, specifically an anthracycline-based chemotherapy regimen. And I'm going to hope that that's going to put them into a very durable remission. Uh, though I do explain that there is a chance they could relapse. There's also a chance they could do quite well following a frontline uh, CD20 antibody and anthracycline-based chemotherapy. For the great three A's, that's where I take pause we don't have good data to tell us that should be approached differently, but where I do think about it quite differently is it's infrequent. We don't have good representation on our studies with things like bendamustine-based approaches or even non-chemotherapy-based approaches. Historically, I think many oncologists would pursue that or approach it with an anthracycline-based therapy. But I don't think it commits patients to RCHOP, for instance, but it is something that I, I think a little bit longer about than, than other scenarios. You also mentioned about how imaging goes hand in hand with that pathology diagnosis. 
and mentioned the role of PET CT imaging. Tell me a little bit about how you use that to come up with a stage for a patient with follicular lymphoma and how you think about low tumor burden versus high tumor burden disease. I think where PET's been particularly helpful uh, for staging lymphoma patients is when I have a patient that is viewed to be limited stage by PET, I'm going to be more confident about that. And I'm going to offer them potentially radiation therapy uh, because we know that there've been very good or very uh, favorable long-term outcomes with even low-dose radiation. And so I do put a lot of emphasis on that stage. And I think PET can help us be more refined in staging, particularly limited stage patients. The other thing I think is helpful, though, again, somewhat inconclusive right now is can I approach patients differently in terms of choosing my therapy just based off of, for instance, SUV max? Because the pet gives us that uh, sugar uptake, essentially, and how uh, metabolically active some of those cells are. Some interesting data, specifically in follicular lymphoma, that we may not be just capturing the um, metabolic activity of the lymphoma cells, but also the infiltrating immune cells. And so I think as we get more information, larger uh, cohorts of patients, we can tease this out a little bit further. But I do think PET is particularly helpful in identifying those limited stage patients who'd be appropriate for radiation. It's also helpful to me in, in picking up some of those more aggressively behaving uh, lymphomas or, again, concordant or discordant uh, large cell with lymphoma. Uh, so I like PET at diagnosis. I don't routinely follow PETs at every time I'm doing an assessment of patients, either disease or during surveillance, for instance, but I do like it at diagnosis. And then what about low tumor burden versus high tumor burden? How do you tell that uh, using your imaging or other techniques? I think this might be one area where there are regional differences, uh, but I generally like following the GELF criteria for determining who's an appropriate candidate for observation. And I use the term low tumor burden for those patients who don't meet any of the GELF criteria. So it takes into account uh, the size and location of lymph nodes, it takes into account whether or not uh, there is fluid accumulating in spaces like the pleura or the abdominal cavity, it takes into account the size of the spleen, but there are other clinical factors that weigh in there, such as uh, lab abnormalities, elevated LDH, beta-2 microglobulin, for instance, uh, cytopenias that we think are a result of the lymphoma. And so we're not watching for all of those criteria. I'm looking for one of them that would then tell me that this is a patient that's not appropriate for observation. I think where there are differences is oftentimes I hear patients who come seeking a second opinion uh, that most of the time treatment is decided based off of symptom burden. So those B symptoms, we always ask patients about whether or not they're having significant weight loss, night sweats, fevers, fatigue. The challenge there is that you can have patients with high tumor burden, but no symptoms. And you can have patients with a lot of symptoms that I'm not sure are directly related to the lymphoma. So though I take that into consideration, I do like the GELF criteria because it's somewhat more objective in determining who's an appropriate candidate for initiation of treatment. I think the other key aspect of that discussion is making sure patients know that doing nothing is appropriate at times and what we're watching for, because I think they're all super nervous about doing nothing with the expectation that their disease is just gonna get worse and their life's gonna be at risk. And so carefully walking them through what, what are the criteria that would indicate to us they need treatment and how often do we look for them, I think is important.
So you've just seen a patient uh, with follicular lymphoma. You told them they had a diagnosis. Now they've come back after uh, seeing you and having a, a PET CT scan, and you know that they have uh, this low tumor burden disease, as you described it, that uh, don't have any of these GALF criteria. The patient also doesn't have any of the symptoms uh, that you just mentioned. Uh, and you're, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, about observation or watchful waiting. How do you talk to that patient that you just told that they have advanced stage disease, they've got a cancer, uh, but you're not going to start any treatment uh, at this time? It's a really tricky conversation to have. And I think the most important thing to keep people focused on is that we view this as a disease that's going to play out over the next 10 to 20 years. And so keeping focused on this is one time point in a very long natural history of their disease. When it's appropriate to observe them means that the side effects of therapy may be higher risk to them than the disease itself. And so generally, if you frame it in that context and walk them through what the toxicities of therapy are versus what is the risk from their low tumor burden status and how helpful it might be to have more time points in that timeline in terms of measures of the tempo of their disease can be very helpful because if you have a patient who's got very slow, small volume disease is not doing anything, we could spare them treatment for many years. And I actually have a patient that I saw this week who's 14 years out, it's never had treatment, it's never been a problem for her, versus someone who has slow tumor burden now, but the very next time I get a scan, the disease is growing. I think that's very valuable to me because I'm gonna potentially approach those patients very differently. So not only is it appropriate from a symptom standpoint, a risk from therapy side effect standpoint, it can give us more information that can then help us refine our approach. Well, now it sounds like you're uh, getting ready to beat my record of uh, a patient. My longest patient is about 14 years out, and so it sounds like your lady is about to, to pass that milestone. Uh, but what about that patient or others when they first start to develop uh, symptoms uh, and, you know, now have some of the B symptoms that you're mentioning, maybe have lymph nodes that are growing larger and have now uh, passed those GELT criteria? What do you think about as uh, first-line treatment for that kind of patient, and how do you have that discussion? The one thing I just always uh, take pause, and I want to make sure, do I know I'm still treating follicular lymphoma? I mean, if I have someone who I've been observing for years and things are starting to change at a tempo that's different from what has been happening, sometimes I'll pause and get another biopsy just to make sure I still know what lymphoma we're dealing with. But assuming it's still follicular lymphoma and they're now of high tumor burden, there are patient-specific features that inform uh, what I'm going to choose given the list of options is quite lengthy. So I look at comorbidities, fitness level of the patient, what their goals of therapy are, meaning do they want a short course of treatment or are they going to be satisfied with six to two years first, uh, worth of treatment, for instance. So for my patients that are potentially older or frailer and, and I, I want a gentler approach, I might consider single agent rituximab. I would say it's not a common approach, but it's something I do uh, consider for patients who I'm worried they may not tolerate a more intensive option. For folks who are otherwise fit without significant comorbidities where I may want to reduce the amount of disease quickly, then I'm gonna consider a chemotherapy-based approach and again, I take into consideration how concerned am I that it's just follicular and there's no occult transformation present. I generally prefer a bendamustine-based approach if I'm going to use chemotherapy with the added benefit of sort of rapid cytoreduction of tumor. 
And then the other option that I always weigh in my head is who am I gonna consider a non-chemo option for? Something like lenalidomide and rituximab based off of the relevant study, which did do a head-to-head -head comparison of chemo uh, plus rituximab versus lenalidomide rituximab uh, with very similar outcomes in terms of efficacy, albeit different safety profile. So I might consider lenalidomide rituximab for those patients where chemo really just is not an ideal option, either due, again, to comorbidities or just patient preference to really want to avoid chemotherapy. And so I, I kind of walk them through sort of my general approach, why I might choose one therapy over another, and what my goal is, which is usually to get them feeling better faster uh, with more intensive therapy. And you mentioned chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy as an approach for patients with follicular lymphoma. How do you think through the different chemoimmunotherapy options? And what do you tell patients to expect when they're going to get a chemoimmunotherapy-based regimen? Now, they've got several options. Uh, and partly why there are several options is because we don't have a clear um, option that's far better than all the others. We have differences in the safety profile. So most of the chemotherapy options are either CHOP, which is your anthracycline-based approach, CVP, which is similar without the anthracycline. We've got bendamustine, which um, has sort of features that are attractive in that you don't have the typical hair loss or neuropathy you might experience with some of the other agents. And then whether or not you partner that with rituximab or obinutuzumab, several studies that can help you sort of navigate that pretty complicated treatment landscape. In my practice, you know, I, I generally prefer bendamustine just because of the safety profile for patients who I'm not worried about an underlying or um, occult transformed situation. I like it because the toxicity seems to be uh, reasonable to manage. Uh, patients tend to favor it in terms of there's no hair loss, there's no significant risk for cardiac toxicity. I, again, you don't have the neuropathy. I think the downside though is that it has a significant impact on T cell subsets in addition to the B cells that are quite effectively eradicated. And that can linger much longer than just the six months they're on therapy. So particularly in the modern era of COVID, I do at least take pause, you know, what, what will be the implications of having them immune compromised much longer than just the six months they're on active chemotherapy. I think some folks will still consider uh, CVP for that reason, you know, avoid the anthracycline and save it for a later time point, maybe shorter impact on immune cell subsets um, and potentially uh, reduce the risk for infections. I've heard that argument made uh, in the recent past as sort of a resurfacing of an old regimen that we've kind of moved away from over the last 10 years. You mentioned lenalidomide as a potential uh, regimen uh, that you can use in the front line, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in some of our later podcasts. Uh, but how do you talk through that with a patient in terms of the ways that lenalidomide uh, is used, what to expect when you're taking the drug, uh, and, and perhaps the dosing around lenalidomide? Yeah, I think we've always been seeking out what is the best strategy to address this disease that tends to go away with just about anything you throw at it, but also tends to come back. And so I think most of the data out there would suggest that targeting the microenvironment may be one of the most successful strategies as opposed to just targeting the lymphoma cell itself. And lenalidomide has some properties that makes it very attractive in that regard. So we know we can activate T cells and NK cells, and it's really important to partner it with the CD20 antibodies. So you can sort of harness that activated immune system at those uh, tumor cells. 
I think what's potentially challenging about it uh, is the fact that we tend to have longer duration of treatment when we're pursuing this non-chemotherapy option. And some of the side effects look to me very similar in terms of what we counsel patients about in terms of a chemotherapy-based option. But I think the rationale in terms of how it works is very attractive, particularly for follicular lymphoma. We know the response rates are quite favorable. And now we have six years of follow-up on the relevant studies suggesting those survival curves are still completely superimposed, which at least helps me think that I'm not giving up efficacy by using a non-chemotherapy option. I do think patients should be counseled about the duration of treatment. So for instance, in the relevant study, it was 18 cycles of the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab, and then an additional 12 months of the rituximab maintenance. The dosing's a little bit complicated. So if you have patients with adequate renal function in follicular lymphoma, we start at 20 milligrams and we dose days one through 21 of a 28-day cycle. We generally give weekly rituximab during the first cycle. And then we, um, during the first six cycles, continue on day one of cycles two through six. Beyond six cycles, you could do a sort of response-adapted approach where you could dial down the lenalidomide dose to 10 milligrams for those patients who are in a CR, and then dose the rituximab every other cycle, so every eight weeks. So it's just a little bit more complicated in a sense than some of our chemotherapy regimens. Cytopenias are frequent with lenalidomide. Uh, we tend to see a grade three or higher neutropenia being quite similar in terms of uh, incidence is what you would see with particularly bendamustine. Uh, the onset's a little bit different. We tend to see grade three onset between cycle three and six. And then as you dial down the dose, that tends to get better over time. Fatigue is a common toxicity we hear about. And I always warn patients about the first cycle because we're stimulating and activating the immune system. You can have flu-like symptoms, fever, chills. Uh, you can have lymph nodes that increase in size, can be quite tender and painful. Automyalgias, arthralgias. And so just making sure patients understand what we anticipate could happen and what you do about it, I think is really important. And then the last thing I'll say is rash is something we tend to see with this uh, combination, particularly higher rates than what we saw with chemotherapy in, in the relevant study. So once again, making sure they're aware it could happen, when to hold drug versus when to continue, and when to add in antihistamines or even uh, systemic steroids can be really helpful. You just mentioned the continuation of therapy that you give uh, with lenalidomide, which can be a fairly prolonged continuation of therapy. Uh, but I heard about this notion of maintenance therapy uh, after chemoimmunotherapy. What is maintenance therapy? And you also mentioned the way that COVID-19 has affected uh, all of our patients and their caregivers. How does that uh, affect the way that you think about maintenance therapy? Yeah, so kind of thinking back about what do we expect to happen with this disease? Well, we expect it to go into remission, but we also expect it to relapse. And so there have been different strategies employed trying to reduce or delay that risk of relapse. And one strategy is let's use our most effective therapy, which tends to be the CD20 antibody. It's also pretty well tolerated. Let's just extend it out. And so maintenance essentially implies giving one dose of a CD20 antibody every other month or every three months for a duration of two years following uh, your frontline induction, which is usually six cycles of a chemotherapy plus CD20 antibody. And the PRIMA study, uh, which a little bit dated study that there was no bendamustine as one of the chemotherapy backbone options in that study, suggested your First remission duration could be on average 10 years versus four years if you didn't get the maintenance. So clearly there's some potential benefit there of extending that first remission period out longer. 
The downside, though, is you're on CD20-based therapy, generally speaking, for two more years. That does slightly increase your risk of infection, and there's no difference in overall survival. Again, uh, prior to COVID, I had a lengthy discussion about the risk benefits of that approach, and generally, I would say most people uh, preferred to be in remission longer uh, than worry about the slight risk of increased risk of infection. Now, in the COVID era, I'd say that's not always true. Uh, we do know that extended CD20 uh, depletion can result in worse outcomes with COVID in that uh, vaccination attempts are not quite as successful. And so I don't know that that risk is always as um, skewed towards remission being more important than risk of infection. So I will say in the modern era, I'm probably doing less maintenance as a result of risk of infection but I still have that discussion about what, what does that mean from a remission duration standpoint? How important is it to continue to see us more regularly with the trade-off of your first remission lasting longer, but at the end of the day, you're not gonna live any longer. This has really been a great discussion. Any other tips or pointers uh, for patients uh, and uh, for our practitioners in terms of things uh, to do when you first see a new patient with follicular lymphoma? Yeah, I think the, the thing I always tell people is we don't know what is the preferred approach for all patients, and you could get three or four different opinions, and they could all be right. And so recognizing that there are heterogeneous outcomes or heterogeneous approaches, but the vast majority of patients are going to do very well, I think is really important. Well, this has really been an exciting uh, and interesting discussion. Uh, much more to talk about in follicular lymphoma, uh, particularly in our podcast ahead. We'll talk more about follicular lymphoma and uh, really some more of those aggressive behaving characteristics that we sometimes see with this disease when we see early progression of disease. More about that in our next podcast. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL1. Look for all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.